Hello and welcome to Season 1 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held right here on Murramurran country in the Milton Mollymook Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales south coast. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2019. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month features some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2019. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on Murramurang country, part of the UN nation, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their elders past and present. So my name's Nicole. I write for the Australian Financial Review magazine and also for Good Weekend about books. I'm delighted to welcome you all here to this session with Meg Keneally and Lauren Chater to discuss the theme of weaving history through stories. Female highwaymen and the Estonian underground may not sound like they have much in common, but each reveals a story of women tested by adversity Meg Keneally's first solo novel, Fled, is based on the true story of a convict woman, Mary Bryant, who was transported to Australia with the First Fleet in 1788. In Lauren Chater's first novel, The Lace Weaver, two women, Katerina and Lydia, battle to survive in Estonia during World War II after the invasion by Stalin's Red Army in 1940. Please join me in welcoming Meg and Lauren as they discuss the courageous women at the centre of their stories. Let me start first of all by introducing Meg. She is the co-author with her father, Tom Keneally, of a historical crime series called the Montserrat series. Fled is her first solo novel, and it was published in April of this year by Echo Publishing, and it's been getting rave reviews. This one is my favorite. Fled is one of the most satisfying historical fiction accounts in recent memory, reminiscent of Peter Carey at the height of his powers, a triumph of feminist determination. That was the Saturday paper. Meg's father gave her the complete Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle for her 12th birthday, and that set her on the path to writing. Please make her welcome. Thank you. Lauren Chater worked in media for many years before she became a full-time writer. In 2014, she won the Fiona McIntosh Commercial Fiction Scholarship. Lauren... Uh, is multi-talented, as well as being a fiction writer. She has a blog called The Well-Read Cookie, which celebrates her love of baking and literature. And as well as her book, The Lace Weaver, which is the only one we're going to be talking about today, I have to tell you about her other one called The Well-Read Cookies, which is about beautiful biscuits inspired by great literature. And it has cookies (laughs) inspired by everyone from Jane Austen to Margaret Atwood. And it is seriously, unbelievably amazing. I recommend all of you... (coughs) At the very least, have a look at the blog and the book and um, it would be the perfect gift for the person in your life that loves books and food. (laughs) Her first book, the one we're here to talk about today, The Lace Weaver, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2018. I'm going to to start 
by asking first Meg and then Lauren to read a short extract from their books. Meg? Of course. So just uh, uh, to put this into perspective, uh, Mary Bryant, um, on whom my central character Jenny Trelawney is based, was a highway woman transported to Australia. She masterminded an escape uh, with her two toddlers and husband uh, and some other convicts uh, in a small open boat. And this is in the middle of the escape when she's uh, asserting her authority over one of the more, you know, one of the less sympathetic convicts who keeps wondering why her children should be there and why they should be taking food which could go to him. Sit down, Bruton, Jenny said. Here, near me, I have something to tell you. Bruton, who rarely followed commands, did as he was told and sat on the plank facing her. Now, said Jenny, lean forward. He did his best in the world where forward could become backward in an instant. Are you really, truly so delicate that an insult from someone like Harrigan can goad you into risking everything? He called me an ox, Bruton said. So you are, an ox who no longer has to work at the government farm or on the kilns, an ox who is on his way to making his own decisions again, to deciding which tavern to walk into, which woman to take. You are an ox who will not starve to death in Sydney Cove, but you very nearly became a drowned ox and you very nearly took us with you. He scowled but said nothing. Now, Jenny said, lean a little bit further forward. When he did, she drew back the arm that had been looped around Charlotte, this is a daughter, and slapped his cheek so hard that she forced his head to the side. He did not cry out, just sat there rubbing his cheek and looking at her. Had they been on land with Dan nowhere nearby, she would have had significant fear for her safety. But once she'd called on bluster and bravado for assistance, they would not let go of her. Once you decide to make them your allies, she thought, they will not be abandoned. Will you now squall about being slapped by a woman? She asked Bruton. He said nothing still. He had stopped rubbing his cheek and now he sat there as still as possible, his hands on his knees, staring. I will, I promise, slap you again, she said, if you try to throw anyone over the sides of this boat, if you try to take anyone else's food. Do you know, Bruton, of the crime for which I was transported? Still just the glare, no words. Highway robbery, she said. I tended to use a knife. I still have one with me. Bruton didn't need to know that it was old, rusty and barely capable of cutting into a fish. If you ever do anything to endanger my children, I will slit you from your chin downwards until we need to bail out your blood. <laughs> Lauren, could you please read the extract from your book? No problem. Um, so to give you a bit of background on my story, um, it's set in Estonia in 1941 and when it opens, Kati is... Um, a young woman of 18 and her grandmother used to knit these beautiful shawls and she's been put in, in charge of the organising the shawl making. Perhaps even Jacob, who is her brother, could not make light of the way the Russians terrorised those of us who remained behind when the occupation started. There was nothing funny about the way our leaders had been arrested and parliament dissolved or the seizing of radio stations so that the Russian occupation occupiers could assure us all our government had been the enemy. There was nothing playful about the way our soldiers commandeered vehicles and houses, throwing Estonians and their children out of their homes and deporting anyone they suspected of holding capitalist sympathies. My grandmother would have wept to see Tartu now, 
all the lively cafes gone, and Estonian businesses boarded up. Patrols of young Russian soldiers roaming the streets in packs, looking for any excuse to refer people to the NKVD secret police at the Grey House on Poldo Street, the place where one could be tried and shot before their family even noticed they were gone. This was the reality of our lives now. Everywhere I went and every action which took place outside the privacy of our home was accompanied by an undercurrent of fear. Each stranger I spoke to could report me as a spy. Each knock at the door could be an agent with a warrant to search our home. There were no safe places left except the arms of my family and my private thoughts. There was no way of resisting except to stay alive and to fulfill the purpose I had made my grandmother, to maintain our culture through the knitting circle, to, share, to keep sharing our stories and continue the tradition of making shawls. I'm going to start with some questions to both of you and then I'll ask each of you some questions individually about your books before we come back to some more <coughs> joint questions at the end. First of all, could each of you tell us a little bit more about what your book's about and where you got the idea to tell this story? Meg? Uh, well, um, my book is based on... It's fiction, but it's based on a real woman, as I said, Mary Bryant, a Cornish Highway woman who um, masterminded a plan to escape uh, against impossible odds um, over a distance of uh, – can you imagine a small open boat over a distance of 5,000 kilometres and the last 1,200 of them were, uh, were over uncharted waters? And it's a story that has been with me for a long time. But when I was a kid, my parents pulled us out of school and drove us around America in a van for six months. And in the days before iPads, uh, parents had to be a lot more creative about stopping their children from murdering each other in the back seat. So dad would tell us stories about vol talking volcanoes, about miniature children who rode on the backs of bees. And in between that, he'd tell <laughs> us about bush rangers like Ned Kelly and Ben Hall. And he told me about Merritt, told us about Mary Bryant. And I just assumed she was another yarn, you know, especially as he has been known to embellish stuff on occasion. <laughs> um, but when I, you know, when I came to adulthood, I looked into it and realised that he had, hadn't been quite... Uh, uh, that, that he'd been quite restrained. And over the years, the story sort of grew on me and the more I looked into it, the more fascinated I became with it. And when it got to the point where my friends started avoiding me because they didn't want to hear any more about Mary Bryant, I thought it was time to write it. Thanks, Meg. <laughs> Lauren, where did you get the idea? What, um, a little bit of background about yours and, and where you got the idea from. Okay, so um, the um, idea behind my story, which is about uh, two women... Uh, one of them Estonian and one of them Russian, um, in a time of great upheaval in Estonia where Estonia was first occupied by the Russians and then by the Nazis, by the German Nazis, and then again by the Soviets until 1991. Um, and it's about these two women who uh, connected through these beautiful tradition of knitting lace shawls. Um, so I was working in my local library and I was putting books away in the craft section and this book sort of fell on me um, and it was called The Knitted Lace of Estonia. And it was all about uh, the tradition of making these shawls, which are knitted on very small knitting needles, and they have beautiful patterns. Um, and I thought, I, I wondered if the, the shawls could be a voice for these women who had been oppressed for so long. Um, and so that was sort of the idea behind the story. And then the two women's lives intersect as the story um, comes together and they find that they have to rely on each other to survive. You've probably got a little bit of a hint of it already, but both of you tell stories about these women who are incredibly brave and incredibly resourceful and um, 
very, very strong. Meg, tell me a little bit about... Mary Bryant is the real person who the story... We'll call her Jenny. That's the name. Jenny Trelawney is the name of your character. Tell me a bit about Jenny. What sort of a person is she? Well, um, Jenny is... I think if I had to sum her up in a few words, I'd say she is resourceful, opportunistic and a survivor. Mm. Um, She hasn't been given the opportunity by life to be anything else. Uh, But what I really, what interested in me me and Mary Bryant and what dragged me through this story uh, of Jenny uh, was being fascinated with how a woman, not only a woman but a female convict, the most powerless subset of a powerless group, how she still managed to work the system, how she used the limited levers of power that were available to her and how she had to rely on her wits to navigate her way through this world um, and navigate her way to a survival which eluded so many and which seemed almost impossible. Tell us a bit about Katerina and Lydia. Um, So Katerina is an Estonian woman, as I've said. She's sort of around about 18, 19, um, and she lives with her parents um, on a farm in Estonia and they have stayed in Estonia while everybody else has either fled or been deported um, the year before but they've sort of left it too too late to leave and uh, the Russians ended up deporting a, a huge amount of people, thousands, um, in June in 1941 out of Estonia and the Baltic states. Um, and so Kati finds herself sort of abandoned and having to rely on the help of this group of Forest Brothers. Um, they were the partisans, the rebels, um, and so they help her in, in her sort of journey. But... Unlike the rebels, you know, um, I wanted to make it sort of realistic that she wasn't just going to pick up a gun and fight her way out. And so resistance can be some, sometimes as simple as staying alive, I think, in these situations. So women, women didn't have that choice to fight. So, um, and, and Lydia is the other character in my story and she is living in Moscow at the start of the story. She's living a very sheltered life, a very privileged, privileged life, but she comes to realise that everything that she thought about her family and her heritage was all sort of a lie. And so she goes in pursuit of the truth um, and in that way finds her own strength. Both of you are writing historical fiction. I know, Meg, that's what you've done before in the Montserrat series. That's historical crime. Lauren, this is your first book. What is it that drew each of you to that genre and and what do you like most about writing historical fiction? Um, I've always been interested in history. I think I've been indoctrinated from birth because I was dragged around after my parents around various, you know, convict sites. Um, And I've always been also fascinated by the process of finding this person in the historical record and doing the detective work to flesh them out. And sometimes there is no historical record to help you. I mean, with Mary Bryant, for example, she was illiterate, so she didn't leave any records of her thoughts or feelings. She didn't leave any journals or any letters. So trying to put together what you know about history and what you know about human nature and seeing what conclusions you can draw about how a particular person might have felt or acted under those circumstances. Uh, to me, that's a game that never gets old. Mm. Lauren? Um, I've always been attracted to historical fiction as well. Um, it's just something that I always love to read and it, my parents as well used to tell me lots of stories. Um, my dad was the storyteller. There's always one particular <laughs> one who has that big passion for it, isn't there? Um, 
But for me, I started out writing a lot of different, um, in a lot of different genres, and I didn't really know <coughs> what I wanted to stick to. And this was just the one that I ended up finishing and had the passion and the drive to finish was the historical fiction. Um, probably because I like, as you say, looking for those gaps in history where you can let your imagination flourish and you're not so restricted by um, sort of contemporary facts. Lauren, are there any writers of historical fiction that you particularly admire? Uh, we were talking about that earlier. <laughs> um, Margaret Atwood, love. Um, I also love Pat Barker, uh, read her Silence of the Girls last year and just thought that was phenomenal and wished that I had written it. <laughs> uh, professional jealousy is a curse. Um, <laughs> and I also love, uh, I love Rose Tremaine's Restoration, read that recently about you know 20 years behind the times um and that was amazing love that meg what about you um hillary mantel bring up the bodies in wolf hall although she's as an individual she scares me <laughs> um, could you, you you told us a story backstage well, could you share that with the audience I, I could be i could be maligning her and i hope i'm not but i had read an account from another writer who had been approached by her at a writers' festival and told off for not doing rigorous enough research for a book he'd he'd written. Um, uh, so I mean, if if that was me, I'd hide under the table, I think, and probably <laughs> never come out. Uh, but this guy said to her, um, uh, "Well, you know, Shakespeare made stuff up." Up and she said, "Darling, you're no Shakespeare," and turned and <laughs> uh, walked walked away. But what I really admire about her, and what I think is a common feature for the best historical fiction, is that the research shines through, but it never feels like a history lesson. Mm. Um, so you get a sense of the period, you get a flavour of it, you learn stuff without learning it. But there's nobody saying, "Well, as you know, Ponsonby, we are surveying this harbour with." 11 ships in it, each of which weighs approximately 400 tonnes and, you know, so on and uh, so on and so forth. So she's great like that. Other writers who are good at that, probably the first historic, historical fiction, adult historical fiction novel I read when I was in my early teens was um, The Sun in Splendour by Sharon Penman, which is about the War of the Roses mm -hmm. and that really um, uh, got me into this whole thing as well. Uh, and um, uh, I think it counts as historical fiction, Clan of the Cave Bear, mm. all of that prehistory. And one of the books that, you know how everybody has a book that they sort of, they read it and then they put it down and they go, that's it, I don't need to write anymore, there's just nothing I can add. Um, one of those is, uh, for me, is Perfume by Patrick Susskind. Yeah. Which is, um, I think, also counts as historical fiction, doesn't it? So, yes. As well as crime fiction, as well as just awesomeness. <laughs> I'm going to ask each of you now a little bit about your books. Lauren, I'll start with you. Could you tell us what what was life like? And I'm sorry, I should start by saying that was a, a really nice um, mention of the research. We're going to come a little bit later to talk to the research techniques that these two have used. But I can tell you exactly what Meg's just described, that they the books wear the research lightly. You don't feel like you're being preached at or taught but it's very clear from both of them the depth of the research. So we will talk about their research methods a little bit later. Lauren, yes, could you tell me what was life like for the people of Estonia while they were under Soviet occupation? Um, it was incredibly 
tough for them. Um, they had no idea whether they would get that knock on the door at night and be dragged off to um, Siberia, which is where they sent all the deportees. Um, I imagine that it was it was a very tense time and I tried to um, reflect that in the story and that really your own private thoughts from the interviews that I did with Estonian women, they said that the only safe place was really either their families or their own private thoughts and their own selves, that that was the only real place that they could take refuge in. Um, they were also sort of restricted as to what they what jobs they could do. The Russians were obviously given all the best positions um, and so a lot of them had to work in coal mines and those that um, were on the lists that the NKVD wanted to get rid of, they either accepted their fate and got on the railroad cart or they melted into the forest and became these partisans, these forest brothers. Um, and the lifespan of a forest brother was estimated to be a year, I think. So what sort of people did the Soviets want to deport? What, what determined whether you were on a list to be deported or um, not? Of course, the most intelligent usually, the teachers, the, um, the people that were likely to speak speak out, I think, and also to tell their friends and their families, you know, that this isn't the way that things need to be. People who ran newspapers, um, so newspapers were sort of obviously under control. Uh, radios, nobody was allowed a radio. Bicycles were um, monitored, you know, so you couldn't own a bicycle, you couldn't get around. Um, wow. So it was all these different restrictions, that layers of restriction, um, and it, it must have just felt so claustrophobic. Tell us a little bit about Katerina and Lydia. We, you, we mentioned them earlier. They're both very strong women, but they are quite different. Could you tell us a little bit about each of their personalities and the ways in which, the ways in which they're different? Mm, so um, Katerina is, is an Estonian woman. She's been brought up um, in Estonia, and Estonian women are quite tough, <laughs> um, probably because of the circumstances in, in which they lived, but, uh, but they have these sort of this sort of gung-ho mentality where they will, they think they just give a birth and then they're back washing the dishes after a couple of hours, you know. Um, and so Katerina is is quite forceful in the way that, and quite a strong, has quite strong opinions um, and she will voice them. Whereas Lydia has grown up uh, in this very sheltered place in Moscow, uh, in the Kremlin, and so she's a lot more, um, a lot more sort of careful about what she um, says and what she thinks and it's a slow sort of unravelling of what she's believed over time. <coughs> and what is it that brings um, Lydia to Estonia? What's her connection to Estonia? Um, so her mother was Estonian and um, she was taught to knit these beautiful shawls when she was a young girl and so Lydia on this sort of whim, well she has to get out of, uh, of Moscow anyway, but um, she goes in search of, of her history, her family history looking for the woman who sort of made these, taught her mother to make these shawls and then sort of discovers that she has this uh, part Estonian history and so um, it's it's a journey for her, um, you know, a, a metaphysical and, and a mental journey as well as a physical journey to another place. Lauren, are they based on real women, these characters? Um, Katerina is, is not based on anyone in particular, just from the research and the interviews that I did. Um, Lydia is actually based on Svetlana Stalin, who was Stalin's real-life daughter. Um, she had a very sort of terrible, as you can imagine, life. She lived in privilege but, of course, um, was sort of trapped in this gilded cage. Um, she, when she was about 16, she had a boyfriend 
sort of a, um, he was a director, a Jewish film director, and they had a sort of illicit love affair. I don't think it was ever physical, but they would call each other on the phone and send each other secret messages and they would blow kisses to each other. But, of course, Stalin found out about it and he had um, her boyfriend shipped off to this gulag and they never saw each other again. So I, I really wanted to sort of show in the story that even women, women couldn't even be allowed to love who they wanted to love in that time period. You've shown us that beautiful shawl. Tell us a little bit about the knitting circle and the significance of it. So Katerina leads that knitting circle. Where did she, she where did she learn to knit? What's her history, her connection to this beautiful knitting? Um, so her grandmother was a master knitter and the master knitters in Estonia are the women who sort of pass on these patterns and they teach the younger women and they also organise the selling of shawls because they used to sell these shawls to um, the Russian tourists who would come off the boats. So it, the tradition started in this little town called Harpsalu, which is on the western coast of Estonia. And um, that's where her grandmother comes from. And so her grandmother has taught her these traditions and she has passed them on um, to her and started her own little knitting circle in Tartu. And tell us a bit about that knitting circle. What sort of what sort of women are part of that circle? Um, so the women are a family. Some of her family members, her cousin Etty, um, her aunt Judith, um, and so it's quite challenging for her because she's a young woman and she has she has this knowledge and this power. But you know, having to negotiate some of the dynamics of this knitting circle is, is part of her job. In some a way. of them are a lot older than her. Yeah, some they? of them are a lot older. They're sort of grandmother babushka age, you know, and so. Um, but they all have their own stories and these shawls are a way for them to, to tell those stories. And you mentioned earlier, I think, that there are different forms of resistance and is this, is this one of the, I suppose, fields or ways that was open to women to, in a sense, resist, to get together, yes. to keep knitting? You, you tell me a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I, um, I think it was. It was a way where they, a place where they could share their stories and share their fears and what was happening in sort of a, a, a safe place. The, the Russians wouldn't have assumed that a knitting circle could be a, you know, a place of resistance and so that's why it's such a good, um, a good idea for the story. Um, but also women in the Second World War, you know, they, some of them used to send messages through knitting shawls um and so you mean they'd knit patterns they would into knit them? yeah they would knit messages in wow. the shawls because it was like you know you would think that a shawl is such an innocent thing and so I did want to kind of get that across in the story as well there's a lovely trick that you talk about I'm not going to ask you to perform it <laughs> but there's a particular trick that you talk about in the book that's a way of telling if a shawl has been really knitted finely as it should yes. be tell us about that trick um so they have a a a trick called the ring trick, and it's to test the fineness of the shawl. It should be able to be pulled through a wedding ring. So I'm not going to perform it now in case it gets stuck. But um, afterwards we can have a go if you want to come <laughs> and see me at the, um, at the CWA Hall and have a go. It's, um, yeah, it's called cobweb lace as well because it is so fine and, um, and delicate. All of the chapters in your book have the names of knitting stitches. Where did you, where did you get those names and how does it... I suppose, how does the name of each chapter relate to the particular chapter? Um, so the names 
at the start of the chapter are all real stitches. Um, I found them all in this beautiful book on knitted Estonian lace. And so I thought I would use them thematically to sort of explore what each chapter was trying to say and what was going on in the story at the time. Um, And so they have names like peacock, um, tail, leaf, stitch, um, spider, you know, spider stitch and things like that. And did you learn Estonian, Lauren? Um, oh, Estonian is one of the hardest languages to learn. <laughs> so I I was very bad at Estonian and uh, my was restricted to yes, no, thank you. <laughs> so with a book like that, the knitting book, did you get hold of it in translation or did somebody oh, translate Oh, this one was actually written by, um, it was actually an American woman who had gone over there and lived with the Estonians and she had... Yes, written this craft book, part craft, part history book. And so she had, it was all in English, um, but it was hard to find resources in English. So I had to rely on the Estonian Society in um, Sydney to help me translate and find the right resources. One of the, um, one of the stitches referred to is wolves paw. And there are quite a lot of um, recurring references to wolves in this story. What is the significance of that? Um, well, the Estonian uh, in Estonian culture, they're they're not really religious, but they believe in um, animist. They have animistic beliefs, and so they believe in sort of believe in reincarnation and in animal um, totems and symbols. And so, I wanted to express that in the book and have it sort of become this was more like an overarching theme rather than trying to jam it into the story but to make it seem natural and organic that mm. this is what you believe and so if um for example Carti's grandmother tells her that she will come back as a wolf mm. that when she sees the wolf she automatically thinks that oh that's my grandmother mm. Mm. last thing i wanted to ask you about was that the two main male characters in the book one is katarina's brother jacob and the other is her neighbor oscar yes and it's through them we see what life was like for young you know young men in their prime yeah. under occupation you you mentioned earlier the forest brothers could you tell us a little bit more about that and what what life was like for young men who were partisans and who were resisting the occupation what what did they do what did what being why were they called forest brothers how were they living um well there's a sort of a saying in estonia that if troubles come you go to the forest and even now um you know, when I was there a couple of years ago doing the research and Russia was doing all these uh, sort of marches on the border just just to let them know that they were still there and Russia still believes <laughs> that Estonia belongs to them, you know. And so... And Lithuania and Latvia as and well. And Lithuania and Latvia, yeah. so all the Baltics, um, yeah. you know, traditionally they belong to Russia. Mm. Uh, so the Estonians are very... They do training in the forest. They still train in the forest. Um, even the women learn to catch. Um, to this day. To this day. Um, and so it's part of their tradition is to go into the forest. And so there were families living in the forest. When the, the knock came at the door, if they'd been warned in advance, they would flee to the forest. Um, and they were just... It must have just been so strange to be in a forest surrounded by your neighbours and friends and sort of hear the rustlings and know but to feel safe, safer in the forest than you were in your town, in your bed, you know, incredible. Um, and so the, the men who didn't want to be arrested, obviously, formed these groups called the Forest Brothers and they uh, would go out and capture um, convoys of Russian soldiers. They might fight them, you know, and, um, but it was, it was really a kill or be killed situation. Mm. Um, there was no mercy from those, um, from the KGB and the NKVD and stuff like that. And um, when I was in Estonia, I did go to a, uh, 
a Forest Brothers bunker um, and was shown around there. And it was very eerie and it must have been so quiet in winter. Um, but in summer, that was probably the time when they were most likely to be caught um, because they, were, they ran post. Uh, the, they had a postman who ran messages and they think that he was the one that betrayed actually the people in this particular bunker and they, and they were grenaded. So it was tragic. And, <coughs> mm. Meg, let's go back to Australia in the, the early days of settlement. We'll start first by... Um, I wanted you to tell us... So Jenny commits her crime in uh, the 1780s in England. I want you to tell us a little bit about that. How old was she? what the crime was and what her circumstances were at that time? Well, um, in the case of both Jenny and Mary, and <coughs> I do apologise, I'm not contagious, guys, but I'm just getting over a cold, yeah. so apologies for the cold, as you meant. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, in the case of both Jenny and Mary, uh, Mary slash Jenny was, thank you so much, uh, was uh, a young, illiterate woman who came from a fishing family. Um when she was growing up, uh, the American Revolutionary War was on, which meant that the government was taxing absolutely everything they could. They were taxing wigs. They were taxing windows, which is why when you're in the UK now you sometimes see um, old houses with uh, bricked-up windows. It was from people not wanting to pay the window tax. Um, and they were most importantly, as far as, a car as far as Mary Bryant was concerned, they were taxing the salt that was needed to preserve the pilchards, which were the staple diet of the Cornish people in her village. Uh, and then one, one summer, the pilchards, which showed up every, no, every, every year like clockwork, just didn't show up. So not only were they being taxed out of existence, not only had they been unable to preserve uh, as many pilchards as they had previously because of the salt tax, but all of a sudden there were none left. And it was catastrophic. It had the similar kind of impact to the Irish potato famine in the in the 1840s. Um, so, unsurprisingly, a great number of people turned to turned to crime, and Mary Bryant uh, was among them. Uh, but she um, she went a little further than most convicts. There's a reason that it's cliche that you know my great-great-grandmother was transported for stealing a crust of bread. It's because those survival crimes made up the vast majority of people transported. But in Mary Bryant's case, she was arrested for, um, uh, for um, beating a woman after uh, assaulting her on the King's Highway with, um, with two other girls. Uh, and How old was transported. she? She was in uh, mid to late teens. Yep. So, uh, so it all started very young. Uh, she was a mother by her early 20s and she turned 25 on the journey to Kupang. So let's go back. She's, she's committed the crime. Initially she's sentenced to death but then that's commuted to, well, it's called seven years transportation but obviously it's effectively yeah. for life. After spending some time on a hulk, she's boarded onto the Charlotte which is one of the 11 ships in the first fleet. Tell us a bit what life would have been, well, what life was like. You describe it in the book. What was life like for Jenny, Mary, uh, on board that ship? On board the ship, they were um, they were allowed some time on deck, but the majority of their time would have been spent below. In the Charlotte, they had both male and female um, prisoners. Uh, not every ship did. Um, so, and this is an example of where... Um, 
you write something that you're certain of even though you've got no historical proof for it. I imagine that the men would have been making lewd suggestions to the women across the passageway. I haven't read anyone saying so, but I'd be frankly shocked if that <laughs> if that wasn't the case. Uh, and I also imagine that this would have made some of the women fairly nervous because they were heading towards mm. a distant shore which none of them had ever seen and right now they're okay because they're on a ship and when they're in their cells there's bars between them but they knew that that wouldn't always be the case. Uh, they did in, this, in these ships encounter some quite extraordinary storms um, they did um, uh, uh, encounter disease. Um, it would it would have been a real soup down there in the hold with so many unwashed bodies, so much disease, people giving birth as Mary Bryant did on the Charlotte, uh, people dying as some people did on all of the First Fleet ships uh, or most of the First Fleet ships. Yeah, it wouldn't have been a pleasant place. How long would they have been on the ships before they arrived? Oh, gosh, they um, – you know what? I know this, but it's, I'm having a brain about, I think it's about 18 Eight, months, something like that. It was a bit was, longer. Um, no, I don't think it was quite that long. And for some reason I'm having a brain fade and I know this and I can name all the ships of the First Fleet. I don't know why I'm not I'm not being able to pull the anyway, exact number l- to – But a enough. long time and many of them had been on the Hulk – um, for months or years previously. So the Hulks were demastered, decommissioned battleships uh, where they were held before, while they were t- trying to decide what to do with them because the Americans had gotten annoyed. I think it was around nine months that they were actually at sea on the First Fleet, but they, uh, some had been waiting for years to sail. And as you've mentioned, um, as it turns out, Mary has got pregnant. Jenny was well, – sorry, I'll keep saying Jenny. <laughs> Jenny has – has got pregnant. She has her baby on board on the Charlotte before they reach the settlement. And then when she reaches the settlement, she persuades one of the other convicts, a man called Dan, to marry her. Now, I'd like you to explain why she needed to do that. Mary, uh, Jenny is a very independent, feisty, strong woman. Dan's not the father of the child. Why did she need a husband? Well, um, she was certainly independent and feisty and strong, but she was a woman in a society where that was not a tremendously good thing to be. Uh, So she needed a husband for a couple of reasons. First of all, as I mentioned before, I would imagine some of the women were nervous because of the suggestions that the men were making. And Jenny slash Mary was a new mother with a brand new baby who uh, is worried about what is going to happen to that baby if the men suddenly decide to rush the women after so long, sort of within spitting distance of them, but um, <coughs> pardon me, but locked away from them. So a husband provides protection from that. And she also was not after just any husband. She was really interested in Dan because she knew that he was one of the few people in the entire First Fleet that had some fishing skill. And, of course, the First Fleet was supposed to be absolutely packed with stonemasons and farmers and carpenters and fishermen and all sorts of people who, who would have been specifically chosen for their ability to help build the new colony. The reality was that it was the luck of the draw who got sent. And so Will Bryant slash Dan Gwynn was one of the only trained fishermen in the entire First Fleet. And... Um, Jenny knew that if she could, uh, convicts were encouraged to marry because, you know, the hope was that they would suddenly become fine, upstanding citizens. 
Jenny knew that if she could marry this particular man, this very useful man, that they would get special treatment. So it was for those two reasons. Meg, by 1790, the colony was approaching starvation mm. and it's about that time that Jenny and Dan start to, um, to plot their escape. Just going back a step, what, why? Why was the colony approaching starvation? Why were things that bad? Um, because the British had assumed that the soil here would mimic the polite English soil, which kindly grew everything that they planted in it. And our soil went, yeah, no. Nah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so they were, they were having a lot of trouble growing crops and really the situation didn't resolve itself until they... Um, uh, until James Roos went to Parramatta and got things growing there. And um, uh, so no crops. Secondly, all of the livestock that they'd brought had escaped pretty much soon after landing, or most of it. Thirdly, um, the governor's hunting hounds were no match for kangaroos, so they couldn't bring down any kangaroos. They had assumed – they'd made all sorts of ridiculous assumptions. They'd assumed that they might find some sort of livestock that here the way they had in England – um, uh, the one thing they didn't do is ask the Indigenous people how they were surviving, which would have made sense, but no, we can't do a thing like that. Um, the other issue is that the fish were not only different, but fisher, uh, uh, fisher folk in, uh, from England and particularly from Cornwall, Cornwall were used to hauling in net after net after net of just fish that would sort of almost sink the boat. There would be so many of them. And... Sydney waters just didn't have that abundance. It certainly had a great variety, but you didn't get that kind of haul here. So all of those things taken together meant that really by the time uh, the second fleet arrived, um, the colony was on its last legs and the other threat as well as um, starvation was scurvy, which we now consider a sort of quaint historical disease, but it was absolutely deadly and just as just as bad as starving to death. Um, Meg, you mentioned the Indigenous people. In the book, in your book, in Fled, there's a, quite a lovely special relationship that develops between Jenny and one of the Indigenous women. Does that reflect the reality? Is that something that you discovered through your research? Tell us a bit about that. Um, I made that particular relationship up um, uh, and in the book this woman shows Jenny how to use native sarsaparilla, uh, how to brew it to prevent scurvy. Mm. And in, in actuality, somehow, presumably through the Eora, the colonists found out that if you brew this particular leaf, it's absolutely packed to the gills with vitamin C and it can prevent scurvy. So those leaves saved a lot of lives. Mm. Um, uh, I wanted Jenny to be the person who discovered their properties and... Uh, the mechanism for that was an Indigenous woman. But there is some sort of echo of truth. Um, we do know that the Bryants knew Benelong and there's a character based in Benelong in the book as well. So presumably they also knew Barangaroo and Galalaborn, his wives. So Morbury in the book is is loosely based on uh, on those two women. But as to the nature of their relationship with, uh, with Mary Bryant and whether that mirrors the relationship that I've created with um, Morberry, um, uh, I, there's just no way of knowing. Meg, 
By the time that they're starting to plan their escape, Jenny and Dan have got their little girl, Charlotte. They've also got a little baby son, Emmanuel. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how they planned that escape and the, the day that they actually made that escape in March 1791. A whole lot of planets had to be aligned for them to be able to escape in the way they did. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how they planned it and then how they actually affected the escape? Well, you're right, the window for success was so achingly small. Um, the, fa the fact that they survived is up there with Shackleton, but the fact that they even got away is a minor miracle in itself. Mm. Um, they may have wanted to escape, but they couldn't have done so without a destination and a means of navigating there, and they didn't have either of those things uh, until one day a Dutch captain called Detmer Smith sailed into the harbour, and he was a bit of a con man, uh, Philip had ordered some supplies from him uh, and uh, he had delivered only part of what had been paid for and they were having an argument over the cost of passage and so on and so forth. And it wound, it wound up with the two of them having a blazing row whereupon Detmer Smith retreated to his ship and bobbed up and down in the harbour and sulked. Um, and Mary and her husband Will set about deliberately cultivating him. They did his laundry, they had him for dinner at their hut um, they very probably stoked his uh, – the Dutch at that time were really annoyed at the English for colonising Australia. So I'm sure they would have fed into that. And I like to imagine them saying, if you really want to embarrass the governor. <laughs> um, but uh, whatever they did with him, it worked because he not only gave them food and muskets, but he also gave them a quadrant and a chart. And presumably he was the one who pointed out the Dutch colony of Kupang on that chart, and without those, uh, without those two things, they could have had all the wo the will in the world to escape. But they would have had no idea where to go. They would have been sailing aimlessly. The yeah, other, oh, sorry, sorry go. no, you go. Uh, well, I was just going to say the other thing that was really important is to get away without being pursued. Yes, uh, and uh, all of the ships were had uh, of the fleet had been sent to various points, either to take passengers somewhere or to collect supplies. Um, about a week before the escape, the little ship supply had been sent off for provisions. Uh, and then on the uh, on the 28th of March uh, 1791, the Vuxan, this uh, Dutch captain's ship, sailed out of the harbour. And all of a sudden, the six-metre open boat, the Governor's Cutter, was the biggest vessel in the entire continent. Um and not only that, but it was a new moon. So there was nothing, you know, they could get away under cover of darkness and there would not be for some weeks any vessel, vessel capable of pursuing them. So that's when they went. So there was Jenny and her husband Dan, there was little Charlotte and there was baby Emmanuel. How many other people were there? Uh, there were um, seven convicts in addition to, uh, to Jenny and Dan. And how big was the boat again? Six metres. Um, uh, I've reduced the number in my book because every character has to earn their place on the page and if I'd made that many people earn their place, it would have been such a thick book that somebody would have broken their toes if they dropped it and sued me. So I, I reduced the number of people in the boat but there were, um, there were 11 people in total in that boat, two of whom were one-year-old and, and, and three-year-old um, in this tiny boat for 69 days. And I'm going to leave it there so that you're all 
dying to go and buy the book and find out exactly what happened to these incredibly brave people, in particular Jenny, whose idea it had been in the first place. Now I want to come back to ask each of you about your research techniques. Lauren, I'll start with you. Um, how did you research what it was like to live in Estonia during World War II under Soviet and then later uh, Nazi occupation? Um, so a lot of my initial research was um, interviewing women, women particularly, um, at that time period because I knew I was writing a, a woman's story. Was that in Estonia? That was in Australia. Um, so a lot of Estonians came out to Australia after, um, well, you know, they didn't want to live under occupation. So if they could get out, they did come. They migrated to Australia after the war. Um, and then they also migrated to America. And so the Sydney archives, the Sydney Estonian archives were really helpful in that sense. Um, but it wasn't until I found a book called Estonian Lives and it was um, a compilation that the University of Tartu in Estonia had put a call out for um, people to send in their life stories. And this was in 1991, just after um, Estonia was finally um, liberated from Russia. And these people had that had been holding on to these memories for so long and they it was imperative for their stories to be told before they all passed away. And so when I found this book on Estonian lives, that was sort of the touchstone book for me that really helped bring the story to life. And so I think with every kind of project that I have, there's always one book and I keep reading and reading and reading books to find that one book that really sums up the essence of the story for me. And so that, that was the book. And you travel to Estonia. Yes. Um, I'd like to ask you what that was like and how that informed your writing. Um, I think it's really important to go to the places that you're writing about. Um, for me, it, there's a, a world of difference between reading something and reading the geography of a place and then going there and making sure that you can see that castle on the hill if you're going to write about it um, because readers will pick that up <laughs> and they they. They did and they told me, um, but thankfully before it went to print. Um, and so I went to Estonia and I hired a guide um, because my Estonian is obviously extremely limited. Um, he was very um, instrumental in helping to get me into places that I might not otherwise have seen. Um, and also just being in Estonia, it was just such an incredibly different place to Australia. In the forests, everything smells different. Everything smells like larch, like birch not eucalyptus at all, obviously. Um, they have different kinds of soil, different grasses. And so I, I want to make sure that I put all that in the mm. book because it really informs the story. Um, and also it was just going to a place where, you know, there are still remnants of the Soviet occupation. Mm. They still have a, a floor in um, a hotel in Tallinn where the KGB used to listen in. <laughs> so anyone, any foreigners who came to stay were put on this special floor. And then there was so this secret floor above it where the KGB would just listen in on all the conversations, make wow. sure that they weren't trying to get anyone out, of course. So, Meg, let's go back then to early days of Convict Australia. What materials did you have to draw on to tell Mary slash Jenny's story? Uh, well, because the, uh, the first fleet was to people of the day like the first manned expedition to Mars, uh, all of the officers had publishing deals which was handy because they wrote uh, their journals which were published and which remain um, in print, most of them, uh, and I acquired most of them through eBay. Um, and uh, those first-hand accounts are really, really important. I did read a lot of historical biographies as well, as many letters I, as I could find from the convicts that were literate. Um, uh, 
James Boswell's diaries because he features in the story as well, later in the story, um, and, uh, you know, court transcripts and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, um, you know, I kept going back to these journals which described life in the colony because you can't beat an account from someone who was there. And probably one of the most pivotal pieces of research that I had was um, uh, the only first-hand account of the voyage by a convict called James Martin who was one of the escapees mm. and who wrote about it. And he didn't write in great detail. It was very sparse. Um, he didn't talk about whether they went mad, whether they fought, how they were feeling, anything, any, any of the kind of thing that a novelist wants to know. So I had to make all that stuff up myself, which is most un- inconsiderate of James Martin. <laughs> um, but he did, you know, importantly, without him, we wouldn't know where they put in. That entire journey would be a black hole. So we wouldn't know, for example, that they discovered coal at Glenrock Lagoon near Newcastle. Uh, We wouldn't know that they were on Lady Elliot Island eating turtle meat and using rendered turtle fat to seal the cracks in the boat, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that if you can come across a document like that, that's golden. I've got a few more questions, but I've just have seen the time. Um, I'd like to ask you if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Meg or Lauren. If you don't, don't worry because I've got more, but yeah, you've heard enough from me. Does anyone here have any questions? Yes, the lady here. There are microphones floating around. Um, hi. Thank you. They, they were both really interesting um, talks. I would just want to ask a little bit about Meg Bryant and about... Um, not necessarily morality, but the the politics of writing about a person who was a, a living person, mm. and I'm assuming she had two children that yes. that she's got descendants. So, given you know the interest in settler societies of faith, chasing your family tree, um, how do you negotiate <coughs> those those different? Difficulties of thinking. Okay, I'm writing about a real person who would have real descendants. How am I going to frame her? How am I am I going to, in terms of morality or right and wrong, and how she lived her life? So, did you consider that when you were writing, or and have has any of the descendants ever? Con- not that I am one, but have you ever been contacted by anyone? Well, um, I haven't, and. Um uh, I'm not aware of Mary Bryan having descendants, not that that means that uh, she didn't. Um, but that was, uh, I guess the reason I told this story as fiction was partly out of respect for the fact that I was talking about a real woman. And I didn't want to attribute thoughts and feelings and beliefs to a woman who actually lived when actually we've got no idea whether they were hers or not because she's a tantalising figure to research, we know more about her by the hole she leaves than uh, than anything else. And we can probably, I think, safely guess that she was no shrinking violet. But beyond that, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to say what she was like. So I felt it was probably a more sensitive way to handle it to invent a fictional character uh, who, could, uh, who could own all of that. And I do think you always have to be mindful if you're telling a story based on on a um, on a real individual, you do you're right. You do have to be mindful and respectful of the fact that this is a person who actually lived. So that was uh, that was one reason for fictionalising it. I think the other thing is too, um, if 
you're telling someone's story, you're sort of invested in doing it sympathetically. You wouldn't sort of be mm. interested in writing it, I don't think, if you didn't have a sympathetic view of that individual. Mm. It's very hard to write engagingly about someone who you don't like or you're not interested in. And, of course, I I both like and am interested in uh, Mary Bryant. I don't have a romanticised view of her mm. and I don't think that there was an awful lot of romance about that entire time period or or about her life but I do admire her tremendously and and hopefully that comes through in the book as well but yeah I mean it's it a, it's a it's it's a judgment call whenever you're writing about somebody who lived uh it's a judgment call and my approach to that was to uh create her as a fictional character any other questions I've got another one then uh what's the most enjoyable thing about writing historical fiction Lauren um, the research. <laughs> I love the research. I actually could do it all day and then never start writing. <laughs> but at some point you do have to put a stop on it and say, no, 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 now it's time to write. Um, I, I love falling into the rabbit hole of the internet <laughs> and following all those wiki links <laughs> through time. Um, and I also love travelling. Uh, I, I mean, I don't love travelling. I don't love the long haul and I don't love certain aspects of it and I don't like being so far from home. But at the same time, there's something really liberating about going to a place um, because it makes you look back on your own home as well and think you see it in it with a different eyes. And so I really love that about writing historical fiction and it's almost like the past can really do that for you as well when you write about the past you, you read the present in a different way and you see the issues that have changed and the ones that haven't and the things that are similar and the things that aren't. So that's what I really love about writing historical fiction. Meg? Well, I'm with Lauren on the rabbit holes. <laughs> the rabbit holes are a lot of fun. There's a website called Trove. If anybody oh. hasn't used it, it's basically digitised uh, newspapers from throughout Australia's history and it's very easy to fall down the uh, uh, the trove rabbit hole. Um, uh, I, uh, I enjoy the research process. I also really enjoy the writing process, um, of course, as, as Lauren does. Uh, and uh, I like the detective work involved in writing historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, as Lauren was saying, I think... What matters about historical fiction is if you're writing about something in the past and the issues facing your characters are the same issues facing people today, then you can be fairly certain they're universal issues. And it's a pretty good way of, I think, distilling things and clarifying what really makes us human, you know, which are the similarities between us and and versions of us going back through through centuries. Plus, I'm just a history nerd and I yeah. like indulging it. <laughs> My final lovely duty is to ask you to join with me in thanking these two fabulous authors. Thank you for listening to this podcast from StoryFest 2019. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at StoryFest Inc, and that's Inc with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.